Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, December 12th, 2023, the 1056th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So before we get into what I really want to talk about today, I would be remiss not to share Liz Cheney's appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. She is still out on her book tour, still presenting herself as that safe middle option. She hates Donald Trump, just like the Uniparty left and the Uniparty right, to be honest. And she's more than happy to bomb the countries of the world until they come back to the global regime, just like her father, just like the Uniparty right wants. And honestly, the Uniparty left is just fine with that, too. 
It's amazing how they can all get together behind someone like Liz Cheney, a neocon. And then you remember, oh, wait, neoconservatism is just an outgrowth of Trotsky. We also had signs that he had planning underway at the Pentagon uh, that was very concerning when he fired the secretary of defense after the election. Um, in the weeks after that, you had people suggesting Mike Flynn suggesting that Trump should uh, deploy the military to seize ballot boxes, seize voting machines, rerun the election. Um, and, and at the so, same time, not just getting rid of the Secretary of Defense, but also installing some cronies at right, high level over the right, Pentagon at exactly, the same time. Exactly. It really did seem like Lang. And now Mike Flynn is someone that he might possibly put back into office or put back into service if right. he were elected again. And I think that's a really important thing for people to remember. You know, you've had a lot of people uh, suggest, well, don't worry, you know, uh, our institutions can hold, our institutions can stand no matter what Donald Trump might do. Um, and, and that's wrong. Nothing like a little panic about General Flynn to start off the show. And speaking of panic, we have panic out of the Ron DeSantis camp. Even the mainstream media is reporting on the latest polling for Donald Trump, who is above 50% in Iowa, five weeks away from the caucuses. We're being told that according to the Iowa experts, this is the biggest polling lead ever in Iowa. And you can say the polls don't mean anything until the end of days. And I would say, hey, you got a point. You're not entirely right, but you got a point. The polls, you just can't trust them because they wait towards election outcomes. And we know the election outcomes can't be trusted. And the election outcomes, of course, are premised on voter registrations, which you also can't rely on. And voter registrations are based on the census, which you also can't rely on. So the way they adjust polls makes them kind of senseless. But as long as they do that consistently, you can still track them in a certain direction over time. So they can be useful there. And of course, they also wait against Donald Trump and they bias against Donald Trump, as do the people answering the questions who don't want to say, yeah, I support Donald Trump. Yes, I know that our elections are stolen. That's the sort of thing that happens in a country where it is proven and visible to everyone that the state will punish dissent and will punish speech it does not like. It makes people censor themselves and it makes people say things they don't believe in order to avoid punishment. Ron DeSantis was seen to have a chance in Iowa. And then Steve Dace and the rest of his crew started bailing out on Iowa yesterday. Well, maybe we'll lose Iowa and we'll take it to New Hampshire where we will make our stand. And once we win New Hampshire, we're going to show the whole country that Republican voters are just done with Donald Trump. Well, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, the governor of New Hampshire, a man who is not funny and not likable, and not America first, unless, of course, he's also in on the op. Well, he has been doing events with Ron. He seemed like he was on board with Ron. Initially, Chris Sununu thought about running himself, but then decided not to. And he and Ron were very buddy-buddy. Ron was going to have the endorsement of Kim Reynolds in Iowa, and then Chris Sununu in New Hampshire. And those endorsements were going to win the day for Ron. And 
it's not because those governors were going to influence the outcome of the election in some way. It's not because of that. It's because these governors are so popular and so beloved that the Republicans in their state will be like, oh, yeah, my governor says Donald Trump is not the right idea. I guess I'd better move on now. Well, that hasn't worked. And now Chris Sununu is shifting his uniparty weight behind Nikki Haley. Now, it doesn't matter if you believe this is all an op and that the primaries are fake. The whole thing is a farce. I tend to think that that entire view may well be true. Certainly the primaries being a farce is true. I don't know about whether or not the candidates are running of their own volition. Maybe they were forced or coerced into running on behalf of the regime who holds their compromise or evidence of their corruption or whatever. But whether or not that's true, this is a public relations disaster for Ron DeSantis. He is being left behind visibly by people who were supposed to be supporting him. The Koch brothers organization, Americans for Prosperity, recently announced that they were going to be supporting Nikki Haley. Ron has had no success in his debates, the Republican primary debates and the Gavin Newsom debate. He has failed to make up any ground whatsoever. And despite over a year of pitching Ron DeSantis as the alternative to Donald Trump, he is now being ignored by the people who were on his side in favor of Nikki Haley. So Ron finishes second in Iowa. Nikki finishes third in Iowa. Trump obviously wins Iowa. Then we go to New Hampshire, where maybe Chris Sununu the political prowess of Chris Sununu and perhaps control over the election rigging apparatus. Maybe they get the win for Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. And then they head to Nikki Haley state, South Carolina and ask old Jim Clyburn to fire up the election fraud apparatus. Like he always does for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and whoever pays. And then Nikki Haley runs away with South Carolina on the back of obvious election fraud. And we hear about her momentum as it carries her through Super Tuesday. Now, do I think all that'll happen? I would bias towards saying probably not. But I do believe that the scenario I just outlined is what they will push for. That's going to be the narrative drive. And if they really are trying to replace Ron DeSantis as the primary challenger, with Nikki Haley, and then potentially try to push her toward the uh, vice president slot. The next thing we can expect to see is some of the people in the Ron op moving over toward the Nikki op. And that works even if the whole thing is quote unquote kayfabe, because going all in on Nikki is the way to continue to expose more of this uniparty right, corrupt establishment and the donors, everyone in the anti-Trump movement. All right. So yesterday we were talking about this new effort on X, formerly Twitter, to brand the site as a free speech platform, despite the fact that it is not yet a free speech platform on the premise that Alex Jones returning must mean that it is a free speech platform because they even give free speech to the most dangerous speaker in all of America. Now, it doesn't matter how you or I think about Alex Jones and whether he is a dangerous speaker. It's certainly not for Elon Musk or our government or anybody else to make the decision on what constitutes dangerous speech. 
Nothing he said should have even been up for debate as dangerous speech. It is an idea that should cease to exist. That Alex Jones or anyone else, including and especially all of the Anons who remain banned for telling the truth in 2020, were ever banned in the first place by a quasi-governmental piece of Defense Department-developed technology is an obvious violation of human rights and constitutional rights. And even the idea that we might discuss who should and who shouldn't have the right to free speech has already incorporated one of the premises for the regime's priorities on speech, that certain things should not be spoken and that the people who say those things should have their quote-unquote privileges taken away. But they're not privileges, they're rights. The government cannot censor the speech of Americans or their right to assemble or their right to practice their religions. And they're not allowed to delegate it to quote-unquote private companies either. Now, I don't plan to spend another day on that subject, but I want to frame today's discussion with this context. As I said yesterday, I spent a lot of the weekend thinking about this issue of censorship on social media and what constitutes free speech on there, how far away we are from those goals. And I think one of the things we often miss in the censorship conversation, something I've talked about countless times on here, is the fact that it's not only about your ability to say what you want to say. It's about your ability to get the information you want to get. Stopping someone's speech not only deprives them of the ability to express themselves, it deprives other people of the ability to hear what that person has to express. And I've framed the problem that this has caused on social media for quite a long time as the intellectual kids table problem. Basically, all of those people who were not censored back in 2020 because they weren't saying anything dangerous to the regime's control of the narrative, they were not speaking dangerous or difficult truths from the regime's perspective, and they were not communicating effectively to real people. They never lost their platform. Now, some of them just aren't into that sort of communication. Those aren't their areas of interest. And maybe it just didn't rise to the level of importance to them to start expressing their thoughts about these subjects. That's me being very kind and giving the benefit of the doubt. I don't find that personally acceptable, but it's not like you can force people to speak up. You have to encourage them to speak up and show them that their lives aren't going to end by speaking up. But for the people who remained on that site and for the people who thought that the number of accounts censored was small and represented a viewpoint that they didn't need to engage with in the first place, they found themselves stuck at the intellectual kids table. There was a set of things that were not allowed to be said. And in order to maintain their standing, their status, their position within the party of false decorum and their platform on these social media sites, they just went along with it. They complied. They said, okay, fine. I won't talk about those things. And because most of them know how shameful that is, they just ignored the fact that they were missing out on half of the conversation and pretended that they were having the full adult conversation anyway. So entire viewpoints were left out of the picture, out of their understanding, and they just went on ahead as if that wasn't true. 
You can talk to most of the big influencers and most of the people in the mainstream media. And if they admit that there is some problem with the election, even if they admit that they genuinely believe that Trump would have won, that the election was rigged against him, etc., they still haven't incorporated the understanding of Joe Biden as an illegitimate president into their thinking. They haven't thought about what it means. So they're missing out on massive chunks of the big picture because they are thinking in an actual false paradigm that they apply to everything so that they don't get canceled, so that they don't go outside the bounds of that bubbled conversation that revolves around the central narrative. They learned in a censored environment. They drew conclusions about the world within that censored environment. All of the things they know are things that the regime has approved of. Those are the only things they can form thoughts around. They're not allowed to go outside of that and they obey the restrictions. So everything they think about the world has to exist within that bubble surrounding the central narrative. You cannot understand the big picture like that, which is why people in the mainstream don't make sense about anything. Now, if someone is wrong about virtually everything that matters absolutely all the time, I don't personally understand how someone like that could be referred to as smart. And then, of course, you'll hear an explanation about how they still have a high IQ, even though no one can just sense IQ floating out there in the ether. Not that IQ is even accurate in the first place. It's just the way we think about things. It is a paradigm developed so that we can call people who don't know anything and who are wrong all the time, very, very smart, assuming that they have memorized the fullness of their indoctrination. And that is primarily what people set themselves to doing throughout the last three and a half years around the intellectual kids table. They memorize all sorts of names and all sorts of statistics and all sorts of processes that they learned from the science. And they can regurgitate all that information. And to a degree, they can contextualize that information. Everyone who has ever witnessed a discussion about COVID or had a discussion about COVID probably ends up having to deal with a bunch of recited facts from authoritative sources that the person arguing believes substantiate and support their position on a given COVID related issue. And to standard issue villagers, this seems like a great display of intellectual acumen, except the problem is all of the numbers they're using are wrong on their face and wrong because of how they were derived. And the people giving those numbers will likely admit that they also know those numbers are wrong, but think that that's the best we have. Well, if you're going to say that these numbers don't count, where do you get your numbers from? Hey, genius, here's the thing. We don't actually need numbers because if we understand that the whole thing is a lie, then we don't have to adopt the entire paradigm of the lie in order to be able to get to the bottom of this. Now, this should be the sort of thing that everyone understands intuitively. Made up numbers are as relevant to what to do about a virus that kills at a lower rate than the flu. Not that any of it's real in the first place as the number of needles on a Christmas tree would be. They're totally meaningless. Oh, where did you get your numbers? I got my numbers from tests that didn't work. The tests were being given by a guy in a van outside of a Target. 
who was getting paid based on the number of positive tests that he could produce. And they were testing the hell out of healthy people. That's where my numbers come from. Where do your numbers come from? Oh, my numbers come from me just counting the number of needles on the Christmas tree. And I figured that those were just as accurate because they are. Now, we should all understand why this is true. Intuitively, they're making up numbers. The numbers should reflect a reality and they seem to be retrieved and created in a way that would reflect reality. They are literally designed to reflect a reality. Unfortunately, the entire process is corrupted to present a false reality and it's incapable of producing the reality it claims to be able to produce. And the fact that the numbers don't mean anything means the conversation doesn't mean anything. At the very bottom, they are doing what I often say, arguing about the details of a complete and total fiction. And that is what people around the intellectual kids table did primarily over the last nearly four years now. They are people who we've commonly called smart, who people think of as smart. Some of our experts, some of our scientists, some of our thought leaders, you know, the very serious intellectuals in the mainstream, they make entire careers arguing over the details of complete and total fictions. And most of that is based on the idea that they have the best access to the proper numbers and they know how to use numbers the right way. And they have studied in a given field for a long time. And that means that they know how to use the numbers the best, but the numbers are meaningless. You're just not allowed to say it to them because numbers are everything. The data is everything to these people using statistics in place of arguments is for stupid people. These are not arguments that require statistics. These are discussions that we can get all the way to the bottom of without ever bringing up statistics. Oh, there's a very deadly pandemic. How many people have died at home? Oh, zero. How many children have died? Oh, zero. Where is everyone dying? At the hospital, even if they went in for something other than COVID and they still count as a COVID death. Got it. Oh, in nursing homes, people who are already really, really, really old and you put diseased people right next to them. Got it. Is that a very deadly pandemic that killed 7 million people? Well, how could you possibly believe that? As soon as you know that people aren't dying at home and that young and healthy people aren't dying at all, you don't have a pandemic. It doesn't matter what the numbers say. And of course, experts and scientists and the like, they don't care. It's an intellectual exercise for them. They get to spar with their fellow intellectuals. Oh, I have the best numbers. Oh, I have the best numbers. My numbers come from Oxford. Okay, well, my numbers come from the Christmas tree. That means Santa Claus brought them. What we ended up having was a set of people who were censored and banned from the legacy social media platforms, having a real and open discussion about what was actually happening in the world, being able to share information with one another, whatever kind of information they thought was relevant, and they would go through it together and talk about the information and it would get vetted and it would spread wider. And eventually those same experts over on Twitter would see it and it would already have entered the discussion by then. So then they would have to contend with it and they would say, oh, well, this does look right. What these people primarily did was just memorize everything for four years. And now they recite it all in conversations as if it somehow changes the baseline reality or what has happened in the country. 
And it's very strange because they're not able to talk about anything outside of that bubble. Over the weekend, a friend of mine who is an old school, lifelong conservative, he sent me a podcast episode of The Rubin Report. That is Dave Rubin's show. Dave Rubin, if you're not familiar with him, is like the uniparty right version of Pete Buttigieg. He is a gay dad who hired a woman to produce a human life for him, which he then purchased. Actually, that happens twice. Now they have twins and he is a leading DeSantis simp and pretends to be a comedian. He was one of the original members of the intellectual dark web. And so was his guest, Brett Weinstein, the evolutionary biologist. So what you had were two avowed members of the Uniparty, two men committed to maintaining the system and the power structure as it exists. And that is what their conversation was about. And it is always presented in the context of defending Western culture as if somehow removing the infiltration of the global regime will cancel out the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and all scientific knowledge and all technology, all progress will just disappear unless we stick around with the central bank's fiat currency forever. Well, that battle is already lost. The conversation was basically two narcissists navel-gazing and telling one another how People like them were the problem and they, the heroes, needed to just scale things back a bit. They don't want to lose the Academy, of course. They just want to put different people in charge, people who they approve of, people who they believe will do it in a slightly better way. They want to preserve all of these institutions, as they call them. It doesn't matter whether or not those institutions are rotten to their core or redundant but they must be preserved because the reason they exist in the first place is to keep the global agenda moving forward. You can't just let that go. Weinstein talks about governing with the consent of the governed, but there is no mention of stolen elections. He does not believe that Trump won. All of these people have avoided that conversation like the plague. And Dave Rubin, who knows for a fact, absolutely must know for a fact that Trump won and that there's nothing to substantiate. Joe Biden receiving 81 million real lawful American votes. Well, he has to hang on to the lie because he's supporting Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis lies about the election. And Ron DeSantis would be obviously part of the usurpation and the effort to remove Donald Trump from the political picture. If you admitted that the elections were actually stolen, Brett Weinstein doesn't seem to know anything about the election system, but knows that we need to get back to a place where the government is governing with the consent of the governed, an utterly vacuous claim. He talks about how great it is that under this regime system in Western culture, we have been able to move past our race-based tribal affiliations. And now we have all of the quote unquote, right thinking people moving in the right direction and they encompass all races. Now, of course, if there's a group of right thinking people, that also means there's a group of wrong thinking people and they encompass all races as well. And primarily they're talking about the woke as the wrong thinking people. But if you allow them to expand further, they will also then talk about MAGA as wrong thinking people. And they will attempt to make sense of this by calling those two groups extreme as if they are two of the same sort of thing, just on different ends of the spectrum. No, 
MAGA, the America First movement, the sovereign nationalist movement around the world focused on sovereign nations with sovereign leaders protecting the ability of the individual to remain sovereign is one thing. And their position and the woke position are just gradations of the same thing. They are both on the same side opposite us. It's not that they're in the middle between these two extremes that are both unreasonable and come to slightly different conclusions. And neither of them has any understanding of this. They believe that they are protecting civilization from an existential crisis that is sure to come if people like them are not put in control of basically everything as they describe it. It's funny because Brett Weinstein mentions years ago how when the intellectual dark web first started, and if you remember, Barry Weiss of the New York Times at the time, now she is a quote unquote independent journalist. She wrote a big piece in the New York Times about meeting our country's new intellectual renegades. The regime establishment told the country, here are your new edgy thought leaders. All of these people who were branded as new and different were supposed to represent independent and controversial thought. So Weinstein was talking about how they used to have these live shows. Jordan Peterson primarily would go around the country on tour. Dave Rubin would come and quote unquote open for him. Dave Rubin would basically go out on stage for five minutes and pretend to do comedy while really just repeating Jordan Peterson buzzwords that everybody would be like, oh, ha, 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 yeah, you're right. I do remember the lobster thing. Let's hear the lobster thing again. Gosh, so funny. Weinstein was saying hundreds, thousands of people came out to engage with rational, thoughtful, intellectual discussion as a form of learning and entertainment. And he seemed to be wondering aloud about where all that had gone not realizing that everyone in the intellectual dark web has been wrong about everything that matters. Now, a lot of people would say Brett Weinstein was out there pretty early talking about COVID stuff, and he was earlier than the mainstream for certain, but he wasn't nearly early enough and he wasn't nearly forceful enough. He talked about how he's upset that his YouTube was like half demonetized. The dude has had a YouTube platform the entire time and he was still playing the game where, yes, you know, it was, it was a new virus. We didn't know what to do. Do we really still have to pretend about that? Does he really believe that the whole conversation was just kind of astounding? I couldn't help but think I have heard these two people have this same conversation for six years. I could look back at a Dave Rubin, Brett Weinstein conversation from 2017 and hear them all making the exact same points. And at one point they mentioned the recent ARC conference. It's this new group that Jordan Peterson is involved with. It's called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. It is a global effort. So a global advisory council is what they are forming, but it's not the World Economic Forum. It's the ARC Forum, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship Worldwide. This is just a World Economic Forum alternative for people who listen to too many normie podcasts. And the advisory board within the ARC Forum is a who's who of globalists. And it is worth taking some time on that, by the way. 
The Amazing Polly has done a deep dive on that. You can find one of her videos on the subject in my timeline on Twitter today, or you can look her up at at Fringe Views. But apparently, our edgy alternatives all lead right back to the same place, supporting that same global agenda. And they say out loud that that is what they want to maintain. And so I listen to them talk about how the world is in this existential crisis unless people like them are able to fully take control of all the power in the world and set it back on its proper course. But they can't even think their way through the fact that there's no reason to believe Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. And our problems are actually quite a bit larger than Brett's concerns about adherence to religion or too much atheism. You got to be right in the middle where Brett is or his hand wringing about somehow losing all of this progress. He thinks that all of the quote unquote progress in the world comes from progressivism. You see, we can't just get rid of progressivism. We need to pretend that all of these ideologies that support the regime are all very different and all very important and not just all the same thing. He can't even reach that our elections are stolen, despite knowing that they're stolen in countries around the world. It just can't possibly happen here. And he doesn't say anything about the rest of the world. He doesn't indicate any understanding whatsoever about the rest of the world. I'm sure that he could repeat the central narrative about Ukraine, and I'm sure that he can repeat the central narrative about Israel, but there's no indication that he knows what's going on in the geopolitical sphere at all. Neither of them the entire time ever discussed the BRICS coalition. They never discussed the emergence of the multipolar world order and the end of the one world international liberal rules-based order. And of course, that's what they're trying to uphold in a way so ignorant that if you ask them, hey, are you trying to uphold that one world international liberal rules-based order, also known as globalism? They would say, oh no, that's not what we're trying to uphold. We're trying to uphold Western values. Have they ever thought about the one world international liberal rules-based order? It seems like they haven't, because if they understood that as the dynamic and they understood that was happening, then they should and would understand that there are inevitable changes on the horizon, changes they seem absolutely clueless about. They just know that their kind of elites must win over those other kind of elites that are taking this whole thing just a little bit too far. And these are the sorts of people who imagine themselves representing a reasonable middle. They will tell you that they are centrists when really what they are is just leftists. And by the way, Brett Weinstein says he's on the left. Dave Rubin still calls himself a classical liberal, which has been part of his branding for eight years now. So they are literally leftists talking about the importance of maintaining the global regime and its institutions and the power structure as it exists right now while seeming utterly clueless and ignorant of what's happening around the world. Now, as you know, but it's worth repeating, I don't claim to know everything that's happening around the world. That's not possible. A lot of what we get told about what's happening around the world is a lie. And we can try to dig levels and levels below that and still run into lies and lies and lies and lies. But if we can understand pretty well what's happening in a macro sense, then it's easier to contextualize what we are hearing in a micro sense 
And it helps us to apply new information to that map of reality as we see it and as we understand it. Understanding things at a macro level and then trying to understand the micro actually helps us in rejecting bad information at that micro level. When stuff seems not to fit, we consider it in different ways. Well, this information must fit somehow. Perhaps things are not as they seem. And we always need to leave ourselves open to that. So let's talk about some geopolitics, because this week we are getting a visit from the comedic actor in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. Over the weekend, he headed down to attend the inauguration of Javier Malay in Argentina. And today he was in Washington, D.C. to give a talk at the National Defense University. The common understanding is that Zelensky is here to demand more money to keep the quote unquote war going in Ukraine. As you know, I have been calling this guy the comedic actor in Ukraine for the entire time. Why? Because it is important to understand that most of what we're seeing in Ukraine is fake. We've seen plenty of fake stuff coming out of Ukraine. We saw Snake Island. We saw the ghost of Kiev. We saw the girl carrying her baby out of the maternity hospital that Russia was attacking with cluster bombs, blah, blah, blah. I went through a whole string of events last week. And then, of course, there is also Volodymyr Zelensky in front of a green screen for some of his appearances. So much of it is fake that it is hard to see where the real begins. Because things are not always as they seem. I just mentioned he went down to visit Malay over the weekend. Javier Malay, who said he was going to cut all of these government agencies, he was going to be this hard right, far right, anarcho capitalist, whatever they call him. That's the sort of leader he was supposed to be. And one of the first things he announced was that Argentina would remain in the Paris Climate Accord. You might remember when Georgia Maloney was elected in Italy last September. She voiced her support for the comedic actor in Ukraine and for supporting Ukraine in its battle to fend off Putin's brutal invasion. And people said, wait, weren't we supposed to be happy about this person? Isn't she supposed to be a nationalist and a populist? Isn't this one of the sovereign leaders we've been told about? Decisions like that are pretty frustrating. We get told the same thing about Javier Malay, and then he goes and sends an ambassador to COP28 saying that Argentina will be part of the Paris Climate Accord. Now, those are weird decisions for these sorts of leaders who come along with great hype to people like us. And what are we supposed to make of this? Are we being tricked? Were we tricked by the media? Were we tricked by media on our side? Now, of course, all of that is possible. But let's think about these two instances in particular. The Ukraine war effort was always going to fail, and there would be a timeline on which it would fail, and Georgia Maloney saying nice things about Ukraine isn't going to change anything. Malay in Argentina looking at the Paris Climate Accord, well, as soon as Donald Trump gets back, that thing's just over. It's meaningless. It's done with. So what difference does it make that Malay would spend one more year as part of that? I'm not saying these are good things, and I'm not making excuses for them, although it might, I suppose, sound that way. I'm more just trying to contextualize things, because as with Trump, part of their job is 
figuring out how to navigate public perception so that they are ultimately able to succeed in what they are trying to do to the extent that they are actually fighting for sovereign individualism and the strength of their own nation working for their own people. In Trump's first term, there were all sorts of instances that seemed to be compromises with the enemy. Yes, we'll put this person in this position. Yes, we will sign off on this piece of legislation or this piece of spending. And the way we understand it, it seems like it is a really bad idea. Why is he doing this thing that we don't want done? Well, if we are right about how we're looking at things overall, then we are talking about very complex and very precarious situations. And we need to keep that in mind as we watch reality emerge in front of us. It is always good to remember that the hype that goes along with one of these candidates who we don't know all that much about should be tempered because they could actually be the people who do want to go along with the Paris Climate Accord or with the Ukraine war. It's not good enough to just get the hype and send around a few videos online where he says based and red build things and think this guy with the crazy haircut and the chainsaw is going to save South America. We saw Trump do great things and now he's gone away for a little while and then he'll come back and do great things. And I imagine the same thing is true for Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil as well. Are people like Millet and Maloney? in a position similar to the position Donald Trump was in when he entered office at the beginning of 2017, we expect all the timelines to track the same realities, but countries are in different stages and the populations of those countries are at different stages. That calls for different strategies, different policies, and ultimately different communications. And then we have to remember these countries aren't our country. They don't need to do what we think they should do, and we may be missing the proper context to understand them. So Zelensky is in Washington today. There are pictures of him walking through the halls of Congress with Chuck Schumer on one side and Mitch McConnell on the other side. Hopefully Mitch McConnell will make it through the day without glitching. You never want to do that in front of a guest. McConnell and Schumer, of course, are in suits and Volodymyr Zelensky is in his formal black crew neck sweatshirt. But let's take a second and go through some of the remarks from the secretary of defense under the illegitimate president, Lloyd Austin. He says we are here today for a simple reason. On February 24th, 2022, Russia launched an unprovoked all out invasion of Ukraine or at least the independent provinces that are now part of Russia. And over nearly two years of atrocity and aggression, Putin has continued to wage his reckless and lawless war of choice. Mr. President, Ukraine's fight for freedom is one of the great causes of our time. And of course, Mr. President in this scenario is the comedic actor, Volodymyr Zelensky. And the United States is proud to stand with you and make no mistake. America's commitment to supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression is unshakable. Ukraine matters profoundly to America's security and to the trajectory of global security in the 21st century. That's why the United States has committed more than $44 billion in security assistance to Ukraine's brave defenders. And together with President Zelensky and his team, we have rallied a historic coalition of some 50 allies and partners. 
and our friends and allies have contributed more than $37 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. And the capabilities from our coalition are making a crucial difference on the battlefield. Ukraine has taken back more than half of the territory grabbed by Russia since February 2022. And the Ukrainian military has been badly weakened. You know, Putin tried to demoralize the Ukrainian people. Instead, Putin demoralized the Russian military. So together with our allies and partners, we are determined to help Ukraine consolidate and extend its battlefield gains and to build a future force that can ward off Russian aggression in the years ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. King once said that, quote, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. We are living in just such a time and we must all decide on where we stand. So we are determined to help Ukraine fight to defend its territory and its citizens. We are determined to deter Russia from any further aggression, including against our NATO allies. And we are determined to show the world that America will not flinch in defense of our freedom. I mean, all of this is just from another world. If we do not stand up to the Kremlin's aggression today, if we do not deter other would-be aggressors, we will only invite more aggression, more bloodshed, and more chaos. America will be more secure if we stand up to Putin's increasingly aggressive Russia. America will be more secure if we stand up for our bedrock values. And America will be more secure if we make it clear to would-be aggressors worldwide that they do not get to decide which countries live or which countries die. No, we get to decide that. The global regime gets to decide that. And we, as the strongest military, are able to go anywhere in the world and enforce what the global regime demands about a country and its borders. It is absolutely crazy to suggest that Russia has less ability or less right to do what it needs to do along its own border than the United States has in choosing what happens along Russia's border. And it's important to remember that the United States overthrew Ukraine's government in 2014 and has biolabs conducting dangerous biological weapons research along Russia's borders. And those aren't the only threats that the United States via NATO has been posing in that part of the world. He's just flat out saying it's not their choice. It's our choice. Now, despite his crimes and despite his isolation, Putin still believes he can outlast Ukraine and that he can outlast America. But he is wrong. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, America's commitments must be honored. America's security must be defended. And America's word must be kept. Mr. President, we last saw each other a few weeks ago on my most recent trip to Kiev. And in your capital city, I saw firsthand the determination of Ukraine's outstanding troops and the resilience of the Ukrainian people. And on this visit to America's capital, I hope that you will meet a similar spirit of fortitude and resolve. And then he thanks Zelensky and wraps up. So apparently what we need to do is go to war with Russia. And Lloyd Austin has let Americans know that it might be your kids on a battlefield if we need them. Just saying we don't want to use your children and send them over there. And don't worry, rich people, we're not going to take your children. Yours are fine. But for everyone else, we don't want to take your children and send them to die for this pointless cause halfway around the world. 
but we're going to unless you tell us we can keep spending money. And then eventually also we are going to send your children to some place around the world because we can't have brave, patriotic Americans just living here in America. That might make it hard for us to implement our agenda in full. So Austin's already been making that commitment and been proposing that. He's saying we have to do it. And he's saying it's because America's commitments must be honored and our security must be defended and our word must be kept. Except what is he talking about? That argument has not been made to the American people. The American people haven't gone along with that. In fact, at this point, the American people don't want anything to do with this effort in Ukraine. Here's the fake president last week. I'd like to speak to you today about an urgent responsibility the Congress has to uphold the national security needs of the United States and, quite frankly, of our partners as well. <clears throat> this cannot wait. Congress needs to pass supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday resources. Simple as that. Frankly, I think it's stunning that we've gotten to this point in the first place. While Congress, Republicans in Congress, are willing to give Putin the greatest gift he could hope for and abandon our global leadership, <clears throat> not just in Ukraine, but beyond that. We've all seen the brutality that Putin has inflicted on Ukraine, invading another country, trying to subjugate his neighbors to his iron rule, committing atrocities, atrocities against Ukrainian civilians, trying to plunge them into the cold and darkness of winter by bombing their electrical grids so they don't have any heat during the winter, <clears throat> or electricity for that matter kidnapping thousands in Ukraine, thousands of Ukrainian children from their parents and families and keeping them in Russia. Russian forces are committing war crimes. It's as simple as that. It's stunning. Who is prepared to walk away from holding Putin accountable for this behavior? Who among us is really prepared to do that? You know, for the better part of two years, the brave people of Ukraine have denied Russia a victory on the battlefield. They've defeated Vladimir Putin's ambition to dominate Ukraine. And the people of the United States can and should take pride, they should take pride, that we've enabled Ukraine's success <clears throat> thanks to the steady supply of weapons and ammunition. We provided them together with our partners and our allies. I just did a meeting with the G7, which was one of the issues we discussed. All of the European leaders, we are prepared to stay with us, stay with Ukraine and our European friends are as well. Who in the United States is prepared to walk away from that? I tell you, I'm not prepared to walk away, and I don't think the American people are either. If Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there. It's important to see the long run here. He's going to keep going. He's made that pretty clear. If Putin attacks a NATO ally, if he keeps going, and then he attacks a NATO ally, well, we've committed as a NATO member that we defend every inch of NATO territory. Then we'll have something that we don't seek and that we don't have today. American troops fighting Russian troops. American troops fighting Russian troops if he moves into other parts of NATO. Make no mistake, today's vote's going to be long remembered. And history's going to judge harshly those who turn their back on freedom's cause. We can't let Putin win. Say it again, we can't let Putin win. It's in our overwhelming national interest. Does that sound like a confident commander in chief? No, that doesn't sound like a commander in chief at all. That sounds like a desperate man threatening the people 
of whom he is supposedly the leader. He is claiming that Congress has a responsibility to fund his commitments to this so-called foreign war because we have to, quote unquote, keep our word. We need to give them whatever money they need or else we're going to have to ship your children over there to go fight Russians in their part of the world. Because if we don't defeat them in Ukraine, well, then Putin's going to take over the rest of Europe. And if he does that in a NATO country, then NATO's Article 5 will be triggered and then we have to go in. Except here's the thing. We don't. And in a year from now, no one will have to pretend that Joe Biden holds real power anymore. And then, of course, NATO isn't going to exist. So we really don't need to do any of these things. Now, Volodymyr Zelensky has been tweeting up a storm. I mean, posting up a storm on X, formerly Twitter, giving reviews of how his day has gone. He wrote earlier in the United States Senate. I had a friendly and candid conversation. I informed members of the U.S. Senate about Ukraine's current military and economic situation, the significance of sustaining vital U.S. support, and answered their questions. I am grateful to Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell for their personal leadership in rallying bipartisan support for Ukraine among U.S. legislators. Then he said, I met with House Democrats and House and Democratic leader Rep. Jeffries. I'm grateful to both parties and chambers of the U.S. Congress, President Biden and the entire American people for their strong support for Ukraine and our fight against Russian aggression. We discussed Ukraine's top military needs throughout the winter, as well as joint Ukrainian-American arms production. What? Ukraine has liberated half of its newly occupied territories, secured its own maritime grain corridor, and is winning in the Black Sea. We require U.S. support as well as the unity of all our allies. I also stressed that Ukraine manages all aid in the most transparent, effective, and responsible manner in close coordination with our partners. He went on in another post. I had a great meeting with House Speaker Johnson. I am grateful to the U.S. Congress for the strong bipartisan and bicameral support that has been provided to Ukraine since Russia's full-scale aggression began. I briefed Speaker Johnson about Ukraine's achievements, including liberating half of the land occupied by Russia since 2022, winning the battle for the Black Sea, and reforming the country to make it self-sufficient in the future. And he attaches a video of him shaking hands with Mike Johnson, sitting down with Mike Johnson, just a bunch of little clips. They filmed some content. They put it all together and he posted it. Same thing with the fake president, Joe Biden, who's being very chummy with the comedic actor in his little black crew neck sweatshirt. Zelensky said about meeting with Biden. I'm glad to be back at the White House and meeting with POTUS Joe Biden. I am grateful to the U.S. for its unwavering support for Ukraine, including $200 million military aid package announced today, $200 million more. In the Black Sea, we defeated the Russian fleet. Our maritime exports have resumed, bolstering both our economy, which is now growing at 5%, and global food security. So apparently, things in Ukraine are going amazingly well. 
We are moving in the right direction. And in our talks with President Biden today, we are discussing ways forward. We have clear and attainable priorities for 2024, including depriving Russia of its air superiority and thwarting its offensive operations, jointly producing arms and using frozen Russian assets to support Ukraine. Freedom must be well-armed and well-defended. So the comedic actor in Ukraine is in the United States after visiting Malay in Argentina, and he came here to address the military, to address both parties in Congress, both houses in Congress, and the fake president, Joe Biden. He has told all of them Ukraine is as strong as it's ever been. They are succeeding. They are winning. And those comments are being echoed right back to him by the defense secretary for the illegitimate president, the illegitimate president himself, and our leaders in Congress. Everyone is on the same page that Ukraine must still be supported. Are they going to pass this Ukraine package before they leave for recess as the fake president demanded? I would say, yes, they probably will. It seems like they're going to find some way to push all of this through. And that's what's happening in Congress this week. We have the National Defense Authorization Act. They're trying to get FISA reform in there. There's also word that they're trying to include all of this stuff in that package that will make it as though the brand new Patriot Act has passed. And they want to get all that through in quote unquote must pass legislation before they leave for the holidays. It won't matter that the American people don't want it. They'll say it has to happen and then they'll just go ahead and do it because that's what they do. And because that's kind of what this period is all about. They will eventually take out Mike Johnson, replace him with Hakeem Jeffries or Liz Cheney, and they will spend us into oblivion, fully owning it as the currency crashes next year. Do I know that to be true? No, but that does seem like where things are headed. All of a sudden, we have members of the uniparty right talking tough about Ukraine spending. Chip Roy was out there yesterday talking about how no Ukraine spending could possibly pass unless we get help at our border. That is the new thing. Now they're going to protect us at the southern border. They've never done it before, the uniparty right, but they're going to do it now. They're going to stand up and say, no, you can't give that little comedic actor any more money until you do the thing that we've never cared about until right now. Where was Chip Roy making this point back in February of 2022? Well, he wasn't there. None of the uniparty right was. And again, maybe all of this is more than meets the eye. We can allow for that possibility. I'm just pointing out that someone with as many inconsistencies, as much hypocrisy, as much seeming complicity, and someone who supported Ron DeSantis, it's hard to take him too seriously when he is suggesting that he is going to be the bulwark between us and more spending on Ukraine. He's going to put some terms on that deal. You need to give us more money for the border. What will more money at the border mean? It'll mean they build more housing for illegal aliens and they will be processing them faster. Now, hey, maybe we're going to need those systems in place to prosecute the greatest mass deportation in world history. And if that's the case, hey, cool. It's a devolution term. Wonderful. And if these people are just communicating various aspects of that operation, all good. We can give our apologies and pat them all on the back once it all gets sorted out. But for right now, 
it only sounds like nonsense. And we can't very well just put our support behind these things when we don't know for a fact that it is that potentially good outcome. That's why the answer to all of this stuff should always be no. And of course, beyond all of that, there is also the problem that there is no reason to believe for sure that any of these representatives are legitimately in their positions in the first place. CNN reported on some of the reaction from Republican Senator John Cornyn, a uniparty right representative from Texas, said, I don't know whether he moved the needle at all. The only thing that is really holding this up at this point is the unwillingness of the White House so far to acknowledge that they're going to have to deal with the border component, not just to pay for the current policies, which are releasing millions of people into the interior, but actually changes in the asylum system, changes in the mass release system known as parole. And I don't think anybody believes John Cornyn is going to fight or win that battle. John Cornyn was the Texas senator who stood up last year and told us how important it was that they were continuing to chip away at the Second Amendment, despite being a senator from Texas. CNN writes, Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, an outspoken critic of sending additional funding to Ukraine, left the meeting between Zelensky and other senators early. He said Zelensky provided senators with an update on strategic milestones and began taking questions. But Vance said he didn't change his mind. Speaker Johnson said, I have asked the White House since the day that I was handed the gavel. We need a clear articulation of the strategy to allow Ukraine to win. And thus far, their responses have been insufficient. It's not the House's issue right now. The issue is with the White House and the Senate. And I implore them to do their job because the time is urgent. Here is Senator Tommy Tuberville with CNN's Manu Raju. Are you concerned that if there's no money, Ukraine could lose the war to Russia? Well, that's always been a big possibility the whole time. I mean, I've I've never thought they could win to begin with, especially the way we eased into it. What are the implications that if Russia wins? Are you worried about the implications if Russia wins? Well, everybody keeps saying they're going to continue to go across Europe. I mean, they can't beat Ukraine on the eastern side. How are they going to continue to go the rest of the way through through Europe? I've never believed that scenario. I think it's uh, I think it's a good selling point to send more money. And of course, they are sending more money today. As I said, Biden announced that they would be releasing 200 million more dollars to go to Ukraine. Now, I'm going to have to spend some more time on the geopolitics stuff this week. Because there really is a lot going on, and I haven't talked about Guyana and Venezuela yet. But I want to hit two more pieces before I go, because as I said, in the context of this Brett Weinstein conversation, these guys don't seem to have any understanding that a different world is not only emerging, it has already emerged. Their desire to maintain this globalist system isn't going to work regardless of how much they say they're scared. This is from Sunday in Bloomberg. It's not just Ukraine and Gaza. War is on the rise everywhere. It'll all be over by Christmas has become one of the most derided prophecies in history. It was made by wiseacres in London, Paris, Berlin, St. Petersburg, and elsewhere in Europe as the First World War exploded in 1914. These misguided optimists founded their projection on recent experience. Europe had suffered no long, big conflicts 
since the fall of Napoleon a century earlier. Yet as everybody knows today, far from being over before Santa Claus called, the terrible struggle that began with Austria's invasion of Serbia lasted four years and killed around 20 million people before the 1918 armistice. This week, the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London published the latest edition of its authoritative annual armed conflict survey, and it's not predicting much peace for the holidays. It paints a grim picture of rising violence in many regions, of wars chronically resistant to broking of peace. The survey, which addresses regional conflicts rather than the superpower confrontation between China, Russia, the U.S., and its allies, documents 183 conflicts for 2023, the highest number in three decades. It highlights intractability as the defining feature of the contemporary global conflict landscape. Non-state armed groups, of which Hamas and Gaza is only the most immediately conspicuous, play a baleful role. In many places, these forces are supported by disruptive major powers, notably Russia and Iran. Imagine that statement from the perspective of Russia or Iran or China or Saudi Arabia or Brazil or Argentina or any of these other sovereign nations looking at the United States. Imagine this sentence talking about these non-state armed groups. In many places, these forces are supported by disruptive major powers, notably the United States and the United Kingdom. Now, we would never hear the U.S. and the U.K. referred to as major disruptive powers, which is part of how you should know that this is propaganda written from the perspective of the United States and the United Kingdom, really the global regime. But does the United States support non-state armed groups? Yes. And some truly terrible ones as well, including the Mexican cartel or let's say ISIS. Does the UK support groups like this? Yes. Does Israel support groups like this? Yes. Is one of those groups Hamas? Yes. But back to the article. Although the world is not immediately threatened by a great war such as those of 1914 through 1918 and 1939 through 1945, tensions are rising, especially between the U.S. and China. So we're not facing a great war. We're not facing a World War Three, a kinetic World War Three. That's strange. They don't think we could be facing a nuclear war or anything like that. That is strange as well. We are told again, we were just told by other regime counterparts that Putin was going to march all the way through Europe and that the United States would be drawn into war through NATO's Article 5. Are we not in that situation? The fake president and his secretary of defense both just told us that America's security was at stake. Back to the article. And this is Max Hastings writing, by the way. I would identify an issue that seems to me as a historian, especially important and dangerous. One of the primary reasons Europe went to war in 1914 is that none of the big players were as frightened as they should have been of conflict as a supreme human catastrophe. After a century in which the continent had experienced only limited wars from which Prussia had been an especially conspicuous profiteer. Too many statesmen viewed war 
as a usable instrument of policy, which proved a catastrophic misjudgment. It's a good thing they stopped doing that back then. Today, we see Russia's President Vladimir Putin sharing this delusion. You see, it's all structured and framed properly, and then the total inversion is applied. It is Putin who is confused about this. His lunges into Georgia in 2008, Crimea in 2014, and now mainland Ukraine argue a reckless embrace of the risks of interstate violence. He is confident and becoming more so as American and European popular support for Ukraine weakens that he and his people are tougher than us decadent Westerners. And of course, they are tougher than decadent Westerners. Thank goodness not everyone in the United States is a quote unquote decadent Westerner. There are actually a great number of American patriots who are armed to the hilt. And I would guess that their toughness is on the level of Russian toughness. But our wannabe elites and our leadership class are not remotely as tough as Russians. And it is crazy to even pretend that that situation might be otherwise. The IISS survey concludes that any prospect of a resolution of the struggle must hinge on Kyiv obtaining security guarantees that ensure Ukraine's future territorial integrity against external aggression. And there is absolutely no reason to believe that something like that would be on offer when you understand Kyiv to mean, from their perspective, the global regime's stronghold in Ukraine. Meanwhile, we still do not know how far China's president, Xi Jinping, is prepared to extend his own aggression in the South China Sea, above all toward Taiwan. And the danger persists that Israel's devastation of Gaza, following Hamas's appalling atrocities of October 7th, will precipitate a wider struggle in the Middle East. There are border clashes worldwide, of which Russia's attempt to overwhelm Ukraine is only the most devastating. Azerbaijan has seized the Nagorno-Karabakh region, precipitating the flight of more than 100,000 of its Armenian inhabitants. Tensions persist between Russia and Georgia and are worse than ever in modern times between Algeria and Morocco. In Pakistan, domestic terrorism has escalated and stresses in regions with India's anti-Muslim government are running dangerously high. Meanwhile, the IISS reports, quote, the accelerating climate crisis continues to act as a multiplier of both root causes of conflict and institutional weaknesses in fragile countries. And you have to wonder who they're talking to with this at this point. Man-made climate change, the way they describe it, is absolutely not real. That is a hoax. So it certainly isn't the cause of global conflict. Now, they could maybe argue that the implementation of their climate change solutions insofar as those involve completely changing over countries and subjugating them to the will and the agenda of the global regime, well, that might cause conflict. But it's certainly not the existence of climate change that is causing any of these conflicts. It is notable that these border issues always involve 
territories controlled by the global regime and the countries that used to control those same territories and that those territories are always rich in resources like Guyana and Venezuela, who I promise to spend more time on in the history of these places. We have the global regime or the British empire or the global American empire, as Darren Beatty always calls it, infiltrating and seizing countries, seizing their resources and redrawing the maps, creating new countries, new states, the same way that they would gerrymander a congressional district. They exert power. They threaten military action. They buy off and corrupt the leaders of these countries. And then they say, we're going to need all of that land and all of the resources on that land. And it's just going to be a new country right now. And we're going to protect that country. We are seeing all of that gradually clawed back. And we are going to continue to see it. And it's not going to be stopped. It's not going to be thwarted in any of these places. It is going to happen. And we will just get a series of different cover stories to provide optics over the given situations. But it seems very clearly to me at this point to be the same scenario playing out in different places all over the world and on slightly different timelines. Historical injustices and atrocities committed by the global regime against these countries are being unwound. That is how it looks to me as this multipolar world emerges and the infiltration of this global regime is removed. Then countries as they existed before are reforming when they're saying that Vladimir Putin is trying to recreate the Soviet Union. What does that mean? Does it mean that he wants to recreate this mass communist country? Or does it mean that he wants to restore Russia to the way it was before the quote unquote global community decided what Russia would be for them and what lands they should take? And I do want to go through some more of this because it's really interesting just laying it all out in one place. The intensity of conflict has risen year on year with fatalities increasing by 14% and violent events by 28% in the latest survey. The authors describe a world dominated by increasingly intractable conflicts and armed violence amid a proliferation of actors, complex and overlapping motives, global influences, and accelerating climate change. The International Committee of the Red Cross catalogs 459 armed groups whose activities promote humanitarian concerns, with 195 million people living under their full or partial control. Four-fifths of these groups possess sufficient local or regional dominance to levy taxes and provide some measure of public services. The writ of recognized national governments does not extend over significant areas of the global landmass. That sounds like a lot of small, splintered, little governments providing small groups of people what they need, referred to, though, as 459 armed groups whose activities provoke humanitarian concerns. Well, are they provoking humanitarian concerns among those people? Or is the global regime just figuring out justifications for its quote unquote concern so that it can justify going back and taking control again? The writ of recognized national governments does not extend over significant areas of the global landmass. Very interesting. 
the increasingly assertive policies of authoritarian states, notably China, Russia, Iran, Turkey, and the Gulf states, is one of the main causes of the demise of traditional conflict resolution and peacemaking processes. These powers often prop up authoritarian regimes and disregard fundamental principles of international humanitarian law. Now, they call Donald Trump, they call Jair Bolsonaro, they call Viktor Orban authoritarians. An authoritarian regime to them means any country that is not going along with, quote unquote, our democracy, with the globalist agenda, the one world international liberal rules-based order. Anyone not going along with that is considered an authoritarian regime and disregarding the fundamental principles of international humanitarian law. Well, every country should disregard the international principles of humanitarian law and all other international principles as well. All of these international governing bodies must just be done away with. They are useless. We do not need to respect what international bodies decide. That is not America first. That is not Russia first for Russia, China first for China, Brazil first for Brazilians, and so on. That is the global order that is now collapsing. Complicating things, quote, the divide between Russia and Western powers has become unbridgeable and securing allies has become a strategic imperative, end quote. In other words, the democracies feel increasingly obliged to seek friends wherever they can find them, ignoring, for instance, the ghastly cruelties institutionalized in Saudi Arabia. And of course, we're talking about Mawemen. As if those stories we used to be told are true. And of course, Jamal Khashoggi and how he was chopped up by Mohammed bin Salman, even though it was not Mohammed bin Salman. All of the countries in our democracy are the good countries and all of the other countries are authoritarian regimes where ghastly cruelties are institutionalized. It's worth noting that they would use that same language to describe an America where abortion was outlawed, for instance. In the Americas, most conflicts are driven by criminal rivalries, especially related to the drug trade. Criminal groups are exercising even more power vis-a-vis -vis the state in many nations of South and Central America. The so-called war on drugs being waged by many governments for decades is making little impact on either production or supply chains. It's almost like they're not trying. It's almost like they're running these drug trafficking operations themselves, just like they're running the human trafficking operations and the sex trafficking and the child trafficking and the kidnapping and everything else that goes along with it. And of course, the global regime is involved with all of that. Their NGOs literally work hand in hand with the cartels. The scale of violence in Mexico especially is terrifying. On June 26, 2022, heavily armed gangsters attacked a group of 10 policemen near the town of Colombia on the U.S. border, killing six and wounding two. Two months later, organized crime groups staged orchestrated attacks on security forces in five different Mexican states. In significant areas of that vast country, the rule of law is non-existent. In Eurasia, many conflicts are driven by territorial disputes lingering from the breakup of the Soviet Union and above all by Moscow's refusal to accept the consequences. 
the right of neighboring states to sovereignty and independence. So Moscow won't accept the consequences of the breakup of the Soviet Union. And now all of these are independent sovereign states. According to the global regime, Moscow has refused to accept the borders that were drawn for them. The Russia-Ukraine war says the IISS is reshaping the regional and global security and economic order. In Syria, Russia's intervention since 2015 has secured the survival of its murderous tyrant, Bashar al-Assad. It's murderous tyrant who has clambered over a mountain of corpses to secure recognition from many prominent Arab states. Iraq is still riven by its Sunni Shiite Muslim divide. The IISS survey was compiled before the murderous events in Israel two months ago and what has followed, but it records rising tensions driven by extremists on both sides there, including the armed settler movement in the West Bank. These new cycles of violence in Israel and the occupied territories are prompting speculation of a new intifada and oh, how accurate their prediction was. It's like they must have known. Ukraine remains unsurprisingly the most violent place on the planet, but Syria, Brazil, Myanmar, Mexico, and Iraq are also riven. In Nigeria, more than 10,000 people died by violence, mostly at the hands of jihadists, and over 9,000 in Somalia. The numbers of refugees displaced by war are stunning. More than 6 million in Syria, more than 5 million in Afghanistan, and a million in Myanmar. And Myanmar is another place we've talked about extensively as the global regime is being removed. The military there, of course, had to depose the Obama-Clinton-Soros ally, Aung San Suu Kyi, who had stolen the presidential election there using the same apparatus. And how did they respond? Well, with Soros-funded protest groups, a la Black Lives Matter. As for forces to contain or suppress violence, over 70,000 personnel wear the blue berets of the United Nations in conflict zones, mostly in Africa and the Middle East, notably South Sudan and Central African Republic. They have also been deployed for decades in Cyprus and southern Lebanon. Total UN deployments peaked at 100,000 between 2014 and 2017. And we know, of course, we've discussed on the podcast before, and please go ahead and look into this yourself. The UN peacekeeping missions are not peacekeeping missions. That is a global international police force that goes in to thwart anti-regime uprisings in countries around the world. This is what the rules-based international order uses to enforce its dominance in these subjugated regions when the corruption and infiltration and compromise of the illegitimate and installed leaders no longer works. Yet former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon complained in 2014 that some peacekeepers were stationed, quote, where there is no peace to keep, end quote. In Mali, jihadists have killed 300 UN personnel over a decade. Amid acute new geopolitical tensions between the major powers, the UN's influence has shriveled. In the UN Security Council, China, Russia, and the US repeatedly veto each other's declared purposes, or at least cause each other to abandon 
any prospect of securing a mandate in a given situation, most conspicuously Ukraine, and now quite conspicuously Israel, because the United States is vetoing any sort of humanitarian pause or ceasefire in that conflict repeatedly. They continue to be the only country to do so. And we are told that is because they just support Israel so, so much. And everybody knows Israel has the right now to indiscriminately kill as many people as it needs to until anti-Semitism has been thwarted and justice has been achieved for the paragliding go-kart attacks on October 7th that killed 1,400. Nope. Now it's been revised down to 1,200 or 1,000 plus, depending on where you read it. But the point is they can kill whoever they want all the time under the justification that if they don't, we're going to have another Holocaust. The article goes on a little longer, finally settling on the conclusion that we shouldn't kid ourselves. The conflict is not, in fact, going to be over by Christmas. But just a couple more paragraphs to share. The authoritarian states absolutely reject the doctrine that the UN has a right to intervene in states where human rights are being flouted. Russian mercenaries have participated in massacres of civilians in Mali, where pressure from Moscow and Beijing is precipitating UN withdrawal by the end of this month. In Africa, there is increasing pressure for peacekeeping and stabilization roles to be filled by African Union personnel who are merely funded by the UN. Unless or until superpower tensions become less dominant in geopolitics and unlikely development, the UN's ability to intervene in conflicts will continue to decline. I speculated earlier that we would very likely in the near future be seeing the end of NATO, and we are essentially being told that we can expect the end of the United Nations as well. And good. It doesn't work, and it should not exist. We are not and should not want to be part of some global order. We are the United States of America, and we need to be focused on America first. The UN should not have an army that goes around the world and enforces what it calls peace. We should not assume that what we are told by the global state propaganda media right here in Bloomberg, that the Russians and Chinese are inflicting atrocities against civilians in other countries, just willy nilly. They go there to kill civilians. And they're just refusing to obey the UN. But the UN has no business in these places. The UN doesn't have business anywhere. There should not be UN peacekeeping forces. UN peacekeeping forces have enough history of their own actual atrocities and crimes against people, crimes against countries, crimes against humanity. The fact that they are a global peacekeeping force of the global regime should only make it seem more likely that what they are doing is the cause of atrocities because what they are trying to do is maintain and support that one world international liberal rules-based order, but it is no longer supportable and it's not going to just turn around major powers representing over half the world's population are quite clearly no longer on board. And so let's close with this. This is from yesterday in Zero Hedge. End of Western dominance and rise of a polycentric world, Lavrov declares at Doha Forum. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, outlined a potential scenario in which a polycentric order emerges. 
characterized by multiple centers of power, marking the end of the West's five-century period of global dominance. Lavrov addressed the Doha Forum through a video feed on Sunday with RT reporting his remarks as follows. But I assume that you were discussing the multipolar world, which is emerging after 500 years of domination of what we call the collective West. And that is basically just the British slash Prussian Empire. He said the West's hegemonic rule has been, quote, based on a diverse history, including ruthless exploitation of peoples and territories of other countries. And it is hard to argue against that. We want to pretend that the West is only art and culture and science and enlightenment values. As if other countries don't have art and culture and science and values. It seems irrational to suspect that the Prussian Empire must be preserved or else we lose all of those things. Lavrov explained that the West continues to use its centuries-old globalization model to maintain its global empire. He pointed out, However, other countries, using exactly the principles and instruments of the Western globalization, managed to beat the West on its own turf, building economies on the basis of national sovereignty, on the basis of balance of interests with other countries. That is Lavrov, back to Zero Hedge. A polycentric order is much different from a multipolar system. It's a highly competitive environment where major powers possess the freedom to exert dominance over their neighbors. The world is becoming more chaotic, and that is why countries are ramping up military spending and securing energy resources, and that is what countries should do. In August, Lavrov told South Africa's Ubuntu magazine that BRICS is becoming one of the pillars of a polycentric world order. Back to Doha, where Lavrov said the emergence of a polycentric world order is, quote, not the West's liking, end quote. Lavrov continued, in order to suppress this kind of development, the West has pivoted from globalization to a rules-based world order. The rules were never published, this is Lavrov, were never even announced by anyone to anyone, and they are being applied depending on what exactly the West needs at a particular moment of modern history. Lavrov added, In various conflicts, which the West ignites all over the world, including the one in Ukraine, it's all about keeping the hegemony going. Is there a single place where the U.S. intervened with military force, where life has become better? I think you know the answer, Lavrov told the audience. As the old order falls, similarities between the late 1980s USSR and present day USA are uncanny. And that at the end is zero hedge. So what does it mean that no one in the mainstream ever seems to address any of this? You can ask a Ron DeSantis supporter questions about geopolitics, and they will have absolutely no idea what you are talking about. They may have memorized a series of facts and slogans about Ukraine or about Israel They will say that one side is very righteous in what it's doing and the other side, well, they're authoritarians or they're terrorists. They're enemies of the West. But what do they even mean? They don't know. They will tell you about a collection of attributes or institutions or traditions that they will say comprise 
Western culture or the West, and they will tell you that all of that must be preserved. But that's not what the West means to nations who are competing with the West. And the truth is, we don't actually need what those nations see to be the West, which is that empire, that British empire, the global American empire, the Prussian empire. That doesn't need to be preserved in order to preserve art and culture and music and science and institutions and traditions. We don't need the empire to maintain those traditions. All we need is American sovereignty and America first. And that is the point as the multipolar world emerges, as the polycentric world emerges. The United States will still be one of those centers. We're just not going to be enforcing the global regime and its infiltration into world governments across the entire world. And that is not something that we should be doing. That is not something we should want to be doing. The idea that we need to be a global police force on behalf of a subversive global governing body, all ultimately controlled by central bankers and the fiat currency in order to preserve art and literature and institutions and traditions and science. That's insane. It shouldn't be possible that our very serious intellectuals don't know this stuff. Just like it shouldn't be possible that they don't realize there's no way Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. And the truth of these situations actually matters. They must be incorporated in the thinking of any ostensible intellectual to reach any conclusions that make any sense and map on to any version of reality. But they don't. Those thoughts never enter these people's minds. They talk about what needs to be done and how to throw money at that problem, pay people off, or simply use force to get what they want. And all of that is premised on the preservation of Western culture. Our very serious intellectuals don't know anything, and they're not figuring anything out. And our wannabe elites don't know anything, and they're not figuring anything out. All these people are doing is memorizing long lists of facts and then repeating slogans about what those facts mean, even though those facts aren't facts. And not only is all of this supposed to be taken seriously, we're supposed to look to them and rely on them for leadership on how to get us through a problem they don't even begin to understand. And that is what happens when you have spent the last four years around the intellectual kids table, hoping not to get in trouble. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.
It's high noon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel-couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hot!